Uh, good evening to everybody. Um, it feels like a long time and yet no time at all since I stood here uh, a month ago. Um, I now know enough about Orange County to be able to say to the visitors from LA, uh, you said that um, the idea was to escape from the hustle and bustle of LA or Orange County. They don't do hustle and bustle here. <laughs> Never seen anybody hustle or bustle in Orange County <laughs> since I've been here. Um, I, I'm sorry? Going to your lectures. Oh, that's been okay. Um, just panic and mayhem. Um, uh, secondly, somebody uh, uh, expressed concern about this uh, glorious flag. I've never been actually close up to a real Union Jack. Never actually touched one. Um, so that's kind of exciting. Um, and somebody said, is that a cross? <laughs> well, of course it is. Goodness. You never heard of the Church of England? <laughs> right? Actually, the, um, the Union Jack, the, the word union is a bit of a clue. It's an amalgamation of several flags together. So it's the Scottish flag and the English flag overlaid on top of each other. And the original English flag is the Cross of St. George. Uh, that is the Crusader flag, the white, um, a red cross on a white background. And then you've got the Scottish flag, which is a blue flag with a diagonal white cross and so the two get put together and that's how you end up with the Union Jack um, so yes it's a cross um, and uh, in case you fear that Amy Jo is not the preeminent scholar on um, Judaism uh, on Christianity and such uh, you can go to uh, Limur LA because Shmuley's latest book he has a general policy I said this to his face, so I'm not saying anything behind his back, has a general policy of choosing a word and then putting kosher in front of it in order to see how it works. So his latest book is Kosher Jesus. So you can go check that one out as well, uh, no doubt, at Limorele. Well, now, the topic tonight um, is an attempt at modern prophecy. Should we be afraid? Now, those of you who have been trudging miserably around after me uh, uh, during this month, uh, may expect that I'm going to say, no, of course we shouldn't be afraid. Um, well, I'm not going to say that, because I think there are indeed some things to fear, and I'm going to try and pick those things out. Uh, but what I do want to reiterate is what I think has been a, a continuing trope of my lectures during the course of this month, which is I think we're fearing the wrong things. This uh, endless sense of insecurity of the Jews fully understandable because we've been traumatized, um, uh, is not very helpful to us. Uh, there is a real interest on the part of many Jewish communal organizations across the world to raise the sense of danger amongst the Jews for two reasons. First of all, an unimaginative belief that by making Jews feel imperiled, they will cluster together that it will reinforce our sense of needing to, to stay together in order to stay safe. It's dangerous out there, come in here. I think that's a gross misunderstanding of how the modern world works. If it's dangerous out there, then leave that Jewish stuff behind and get out there, I think is the common response by many. You make being Jewish sound like a negative experience, and I suspect many people will walk away from it. Well, they do. So it's not a surprise. The second thing is, of course, that many communal Jewish organizations have an interest in raising the sense of, of threat or danger, partially because it's the best way of raising money. As you all know, 
give us money because we want to do something constructive is nowhere near as effective a fundraising strategy as give us money because we're all in danger. We have an enemy to fight, give us money, we must keep the enemy from the door. Right? Uh, and therefore, multiplying the sense of danger, aggravating the sense of insecurity, uh, is an excellent fundraising strategy. And if that's not sufficient, many of our communal organisations actually exist in order to deal with the threat. So if there is no threat, they have no reason to exist. And that would be a lot of presidents and chairs and whatnot out of a job. And therefore, they have an interest in identifying every example of danger, threat, negativity or whatever that might be found anywhere on the planet and shoving it under your noses and saying, see, you need us. Uh, and I think that this is uh, grossly disproportionate to the reality across the world. But you don't have to agree with me. I mean, you can be wrong. Um, that's all right. Um, so, I, I, I don't think, uh, you've heard me say in many different circumstances, uh, I don't think the sense of threat or insecurity that some people try to peddle around Europe is justified. Uh, nor indeed do I think the, threat, the sense of threat and insecurity that people have tried to peddle around the state of Israel is justified either. Uh, which I haven't talked about so much. Uh, I've had several people come up to me after lectures that I've given saying things like, yes, but, I mean, it is bad, isn't it? Everybody wants to destroy Israel. And I say, so, sorry, who's everybody? <laughs> right? Well, you know, uh, the Arabs. So, oh, so not everybody then, just the Arabs. All the Arabs? Well, yes. So I said, so why did Saudi Arabia propose a peace plan? Well, they didn't mean it. <laughs> Why not? Nobody seems to know about the Saudi Arabian peace plan. We don't talk a lot about that. It's a peace plan which recognizes the existence of Israel. Oh, they don't. No, no, no. Didn't need to do that. There is at the moment, and of course these things change and move, but there is at the moment, as you well know, far more fear about Iran in the Arab world than there is about Israel. Far more. Are we capitalizing on that? Are Jews recognizing that? Are we getting into alliance in conversation, in discussion with people and seeing if we can exploit the partnership or commonalities or concerns? I don't think so. We're too busy feeling embattled. We haven't got any friends. Nobody supports us. Well, what about America? Oh yeah, okay, all right. Well, America, yeah. <laughs> Well, it is the only superpower on the planet. Yeah, okay. Right? Well, okay, if you don't like big countries, what about Micronesia? The smallest country in the United Nations. They support Israel doggedly, non-stop. Doesn't matter what anybody says about Israel. Micronesia's in there going, no, not over our dead bodies. Right? I mean, really. Right? They've got, well, Micronesia's too small. It doesn't make any difference. Doesn't matter if it's big, if it's small, it's not good enough. Places are riddled with anti-Semitism. But what about the fact that they've got a Jewish Prime Minister? Yeah, okay, fair enough, but even so. And, and, and everybody knows how grim it is because they're afraid. Being afraid, of course, is not proof that there's something to fear. It's proof that you're afraid. Now, we all know how this works. Um, I, I remember my mother uh, used to... 
it was very self-confident, striking, impressive woman. Uh, but as she got older, she became more and more concerned about stories in the newspaper about muggings in the street. And, and she would tell me about them every, every time she read them. You know, there was another mugging in the street, you know, and uh, so be very careful, Clive, when you go out, because it's really very dangerous out there. And I would say to her, Mum, so long as there are muggings in the newspapers, that tells you they're uncommon. The bad news is when they stop reporting on muggings, and they just give you a statistic once a year. Every time they report on a mugging, you know this is rare. But of course, we only notice the bad news. Um, I, I, I don't want to say anything too much about health systems, because I know you've got a brilliant one. And, um, and uh, it, it's characterized by being fabulously expensive and not very um, universal. Um, we, we, we've got it all wrong in Britain, because we have, we have a cheap system, which is universal. I, you know, I, I apologize for that. So I don't want to get into any kind of political comments about health systems at all. Um, but uh, just to say this. Uh, we have, as you know, a national health system, so uh, pretty well everybody. I mean, there are people who pay for carpets and stuff, um, but pretty well everybody uses the national health system. And so all around the country, newspapers are desperate to find stories of scandalous malpractice and disaster in the national health system. Every newspaper. I mean, because that sells, doesn't it? You know, hospital, doctor, kills 20, you know, whatever it might be. It'd be a tremendous story if they could find it. So every single newspaper in the country, you know, from the Mudlington Under Slush advertiser to the greatest <laughs> national papers, are looking for these NHS National Health Service stories. Right? And they find... One a month, right? maybe 12 a year, maybe 20. I mean, if you really push it, perhaps 50. What does this tell us? It tells us, given the billions of NHS transactions in a year, they're not very good newspapers. Because for sure there's more going wrong in the health service than that. For sure. it just, it's just not natural that there'd be only that small number of problems. But of course what happens is everybody remembers the negative story. And everybody can tell you what went wrong and what was the problem and the NHS and the difficulties and so on. And then as you know, the classic European mode is to grumble. This is not the, well I don't know about America, it's not the Californian mode, right? I've been listening to public service radio and I'm just amazed by the, Massive enthusiasm by everybody on it. You know, they interview some expert on something or other, you know, um, excessive toenail growth or whatever it may be. <laughs> you know. um, and they say, so, so we're welcoming on the show, you know, uh, Janet Jones, who's an expert and has written a PhD and is a blogger, a famous blogger on toenail growth, you know, it's not right. And she's got, nice to meet you, Janet. Thank you for coming on. Oh, it's great. I'm really pleased to be on, right? And then they have a little conversation. And at the end, she said, well, thank you for speaking to us. You go, oh, it's been tremendous. I'm really grateful. It's been a great experience. Thank you so much. Right? She's just been interviewed on the radio for five minutes. I mean, how great an experience could that be? <laughs> right? 
but, but she's so enthusiastic about it. It's like the, the high point of her life. You know, she, she could die happy now. She's been on KPCC and for five minutes, right? This is just not the European way. You know, if, if somebody were to say to me, um, well, that really wasn't bad. I go, my goodness, I've changed their lives, right? That's about as far as you're going to go. I was, that was really quite good, actually. Right? Um, this is, so, so when you hear of stuff going on outside of the United States, you have to know how to read the tone. What's really happening there? Is this typical or exceptional? Is the voice that you're hearing, are you translating effectively? Because when you hear the voice in English, you may think it doesn't need translating. And of course it does. Right? The tone is very, very different. So I really don't think we ought to be afraid of external threats. Right? Not the kinds of external threats we're talking about. But there are things to be afraid of. At the um, retreat in La Jolla, which was wonderful, um, Ed talked about the business of choice as the great American god. It's, it's not only American, of course, it's the whole Western thing, the materialist, capitalist, consumerist thing, choice. Right? Um, and I don't know if it's uh, more or less here than, say, in Britain, but it is all over the place. That choice is the dream. Because choice gives you your personal autonomy. You want to be able to decide what you do. We used to have a TV programme in Britain, and maybe you had an equivalent here. In Britain, it was called Blind Date. And on Blind Date, um, uh, there'd be, for example, a young man, uh, and behind a screen, three women. Right? And he would ask them questions, and they would give utterly meaningless answers. Right? <laughs> and based on these answers, he would decide who was the girl that he was going to choose to go on some fabulous date with. And, and this would lead to marriage, because we're all people of absurd faith in these matters. Um, so, so that's what would happen, right? The young man would stand behind the screen. It would be the other way around. It could be a woman and men. It doesn't matter. The young man would stand behind the screen, uh, and, and he would ask these questions, and the girls would respond, and they'd sum up what he'd heard, and they'd go, OK, now, Jack, make your decision. And he go, oh, it's very difficult, you know, because girl number one sounded pretty good, but girl number three, you know, on balance, I've decided girl number two. The compare of the show would immediately say, well, you're not going to be disappointed in girl number two. She's absolutely fabulous, a great choice. Let's see the two you've turned down. <laughs> Come in, girl number one. Deirdre from Doncaster. <laughs> right? There's Jack. <laughs> Come in, girl number three. Carol from Cardiff. <laughs> well, never mind, because you've chosen girl number two. He's going, oh, no. Okay. <laughs> When the screen goes back and he sees girl number two, his main response is relief. She's got two legs. <laughs> now look what's happened. This is an, a, 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 a symbol of modern culture. He made a choice. 
He chose girl number two. But immediately his choice is expressed as you turned down girls number one and girls number three. But he didn't. He chose girl number two. But this is the continuous gnawing sense of dissatisfaction which is necessary in our consumerist world. It doesn't matter what you buy, what you own, what you do. I must tell you, it could have been better. <laughs> so that, and you'll all know this, right? In Britain, I don't, again, I don't know how it is here. Uh, people used to buy a home. You don't now. You buy a starter house. You buy an empty nester thing. You buy a retirement place. You buy a, you know, right? It's all just staging posts. It's something to do for now, but it's not going to work. It's all right for now, but you could have something better later. Just keep looking forward. Don't, don't, don't commit to this house because you're going to live in another house. You know, people nowadays buy cars on the basis that they can immediately sell them back. Uh, you know, the whole deal is you buy the car. Don't worry, because in three years time, you give it back and get another car. So don't, don't, you're not buying a car, really. You're just kind of borrowing one for a while with a lot of money involved. Right? There's no commitments. Because if choosing is your virtue, if what you want is the right to choose, then what you must not do is choose. Because if you choose, you can't choose anymore. So we become commitment phobic. This is a common thing. It's not just the Jews. It's a common thing, right? We, we see people unable to choose a marriage partner. Well, in the old days, you know, you had maybe uh, two boyfriends or girlfriends or three or something. And you thought, right, this is great. This will do. This is fine. This is nice. I'm in love. I don't know. And anyway, I can't put my hands on them till we're married. So we better get on with it. Okay. That's how it was. But nowadays, you have 27 boyfriends or girlfriends by the time you're 18, right? And so along comes number 28. You go, very nice, but perhaps 29 will be nice too. How can you decide? I mean, they're all very nice. They all do, not bad, but it could be better. You never know. Let's wait and see. I bet not commit now. I'll hang out. We'll see how it goes. And that is extremely corrosive to a Jewish world that requires commitment because Jews are designed to step away from the world in which they live. Right? However much we want to integrate, however comfortable and involved we feel in the world in which we live, and, and I hope I can't be accused of being a Jew who separates myself from the world at large. I'm very actively involved in the world at large. In fact, it's a fundamental principle of mine that I devote some of my time to the Jewish world and some of my time to the general world in which I live. It's something I've maintained since I started working, before I started working. But nevertheless, it is essential if the Jews are to have any point at all that they don't just end up saying what everybody else has to say. Because otherwise, who needs us? What are we for? Now, this question, what are we for? You know, I, I 
have given a lecture in, in Britain um, called What Are the Jews For? Now, of course, this has two meanings. It means, on the one hand, what's the point of the Jews? And on the other hand, what, what do we support? What are, what, you know, as opposed to what are we against? What are we against? It's very easy. We're going to give a great long list. We could all do that straight away. Well, what are we for? Now, there are great world-changing speeches made in history. Right? You'll know some of them, the Gettysburg Address or Martin Luther King's speech or Winston Churchill's speeches. And so. You are um, privileged, really, I think, uh, to be in a room with somebody who has made one such world-changing speech. Uh, you may not know this. Um, uh, I gave such a speech. Um, <laughs> but it's not good enough just to have a world-changing speech. You have to choose your audience and your day correctly. Right? And I chose Portsmouth BBYO <laughs> in 1974. Portsmouth is a little seaside town in England. BBYO, B'nai B'rith Youth Organisation, is by no means the strongest youth organisation in the British Jewish community. Uh, but I turned up uh, at this meeting. There were, I think, 14 of them, teenagers. <laughs> and I gave them the full benefit, the blast, of my insights into the Jewish world. It should have changed the world, but sadly, there was nobody else there to hear it. It didn't work. So I'm going to try it again on you and see if now uh, the world will change. Admittedly, that was... Nearly 40 years ago, but the principle still remains. I asked, what are the Jews for? In those days, in 1974, I said, imagine this. Imagine a world where the Soviet Union, at that time still a big issue, and Soviet Jewry still a big issue, said, imagine a world in which the Soviet Union says, oh, for goodness sake, if you want to go, go. If you want to stay, stay. We can't be bothered anymore giving you a hard time. It's up to the Jews. Make up your own minds what you want to do. And imagine, I said, that the Arab neighbors of Israel said, look, nobody's going to win this battle. We've been fighting it for I don't know how long. Let's just stop and see if we can cooperate for a little while instead of beating hell out of each other. It's not helping anybody. And imagine that the leaders of the then fascist party in Britain, the National Front, were exposed as the set of cartoon characters that they actually are. And so we really weren't worrying ourselves about them. And imagine, too, the other threat at the time, the missionary threat. Do you have the missionary threat here? Christian missionary threat? Converting Jews? No. Jews for Jesus? Yes, yeah, it's a big problem. Yeah, absolutely. I think we've lost about four Jews in the last 50 years. <laughs> Terrible thing. There are whole organizations that exist in order to combat the missionary threat. Right? And you, you meet people who know somebody who converted. I think they're all talking about the same guy. Right? So, so that was the other thing I said. Imagine that the missionary threat went away and everybody goes, look, if you want to be Jewish, be Jewish. If you want to be Christian, be Christian. I can't interfere any longer. Right? I said, imagine all of those things went away. So we no longer have the Soviet Jewry thing to fight for and against. and We no longer have to deal with the Middle East and we don't have to fight the fascists and we don't have to combat the missionaries. What would we be for? Well, the collective membership of Portsmouth BBYO <laughs> drew up its gathered intellect and eventually one of the members answered. They said, 
It'll never happen. <laughs> I said, yes, but imagine if it did. What? I go, it won't. And that was that. That was that. I couldn't engage this group of teenagers. I mean, for goodness sake, if you're not unrealistic when you're a teenager, when are you going to do it? Right? I couldn't engage this group of teenagers in that imagining. What are the Jews for? Now, Ed said um, at the retreat and pointed out this very important line in Breshit, in Genesis, where Abraham is told that he and his descendants must be a blessing. Right? That statement is elaborated in a rather more complicated way when in Exodus, in Shemot, the Israelites are given the Torah at Mount Sinai. God gives them their mandate statement there at that time. He says that they should be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Well, that's not very helpful, is it? Right? We haven't got a clue what a holy nation looks like. What is a holy nation supposed to do? We're not, presumably not supposed to all walk around being pious, you know, singing hymns or something. So what is a holy nation? And what's this kingdom of priests? Now, I never understood what priests were about until I went to India and started to study Hinduism. Right? And, I mean, we all know that we had priests, and we all know that there are still Kohanim, but they don't function as priests anymore. What, what do priests do? I don't know about you, but in my kind of generalized thinking, without thinking about it too hard, I tended to think of the temple as a rather big shul, right, where people sort of went to shul, except they went to the temple in Jerusalem, and that, that, was, that was what they did. And, and maybe, okay, they didn't have the services we had, they have sacrifice, but it's basically the same exercise. And I didn't understand what temples and priests do. But I think I do now. We're a very long way away from it, we, the Jewish people. Temples are not shuls. Temples are places on a hill somewhere where a bunch of specially trained people manage the relationship with God on behalf of folk like us who haven't got time. Right? They know how to do all this. They're specially tuned in. They don't do anything else. They concentrate on that. They, they live a special kind of life. They, 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 uh, they don't live the lives ordinary folk do. Ordinary folk have to get on with um, managing the harvest and uh, bringing up the children and stuff like that. And the priests live a specially dedicated, God-centered, God-obsessed life so that when ordinary folk like us want something, you know, the harvest isn't going well, we want to have a baby, we're worried about granny being ill, whatever it is, we go off to the temple on the hill. We don't go there every week. It's just there. We walk past it. But we go off to the temple when we need it. We knock on the door and a priest comes to the door and we say, excuse me, I'd like to have a baby or the, the harvest, I need rain or something. And the priest goes, oh, I know exactly how to do that. Give me a pigeon and three grains of rice and I'll just sort it all out for you. Right? And they know the rituals and they do it. And I can stand and watch if I want or I can think, good, they're getting on with it. And I can get on with my business and that's very nice. Now the priest is doing this for me. That's what they do. They have a special focus, which is not quite the focus of ordinary folk. That's what priests do. And that's what temples are. I don't know if you know this, but the synagogue 
was a completely amazing innovation in human civilization. There had never been anything like it before. We're so used to churches and mosques and gurdwaras and stuff that we think that synagogues are sort of obvious. Of course, there's a place where people come and pray every week or the community gets together and does its religious business. It absolutely never happened until shuls were invented in about the 5th, 6th century BCE in Babylon. Never happened. The way religions worked was ordinary people got on with their ordinary stuff and there were some specialists, shamans, witch doctors, priests, experts who got on with it for the people. And we are told to be a kingdom of priests, a nation of priests, all Jews, not just Kohanim. So what does this mandate mean then for the Jews? The first thing it must imply is that the Jews have a level of responsibility for somebody who's not Jewish. Because if all the Jews are priests, who are they being priests for? That must mean the rest of the world. So the first thing is that Jews have a responsibility for the rest of the world. And I don't just mean in a general kind of way. I mean in a specific, personal kind of way. Not, not just kind of, well, I try and make the environment a bit better. Or I always work a lot for peace. But actually to respond to, to minister to, to care about the people in your street, the people in your town, the people nearby, the people going without, the people who have needs. Because you know what the prophets say again and again and again and again? It doesn't matter how much ritual stuff you do. It doesn't matter how many sacrifices you make. I don't care, says Isaiah on behalf of God, about your new moons and your Sabbaths. So long as you're mistreating the widow and the orphan and the stranger, they make me sick. And Jews need to know that. That doesn't mean, of course, don't bother with the Shabbats and the Rosh Chodeshim and, and all that stuff course do those things that's how we construct our understanding of how it works because remember priests live a particular regime which is designed to make them god obsessed it's designed to shift them a bit from the ordinary day-to-day -day that most people live to put them in another plane so that every time a problem arises they don't just think of the material instant issue but they see it in a bigger picture that's what priests are supposed to do. Of course, we all know they don't do it very well. Again and again, they don't do it very well. That the ritual obsesses them and they lose touch with what it is they're really supposed to be doing. But the Jews are supposed to be a kingdom of priests. We are supposed to do that. And we're supposed to do it in and for the world. Now... That doesn't mean to say that I think the rest of the world is a bunch of benighted folk who can't manage for themselves and they need us to get them straight. Because, of course, as you know, in the Jewish world, it's not the priests necessarily who raise the game. The priests are part of the structure. They're the system for doing it. But they didn't always do it. And so from time to time, prophets arise. They're not Kohanim necessarily. They're just folk come out of nowhere. 
with an inspired message, who sometimes challenge the priests, who argue with them, who condemn their attitudes. And so in our world too, it's not just Jews who have moral insights. It's not just Jews who know what needs to be done. Sometimes we forget what needs to be done. We become so obsessed with our own little game that we forget about any responsibility for anybody else. And so prophets arise. Whether it's Gandhi or, or Martin Luther King or Mandela or whoever. Prophets arise from other sources who challenge us and remind us and kick us back into our essential function as a Jewish people. So what should we be afraid of? Well, we should be afraid of our desire to fit in. Because we should not fit in. If nobody notices that you're a Jew, you're doing something wrong. Because the Jews are a witness people. If we just fit in to the point where nobody can see the difference, if we're just like everybody else, what are we for? If we can't add Jewish insights, if we can't raise the tone of the conversation, if we can't bring to bear Jewish challenges, then who's going to do that? I know we're all brilliant at saying Western things. We can all tell you what every other American can say. But who's going to bring the Jewish voice? If you live and work in one of those multicultural environments where you have a, a Hindu and a Muslim and a Christian and so on and so forth, you may notice that you hear Hindu stuff from the Hindu occasionally. Well, you know, in our tradition, we blah, blah. Right? And the Muslim says, well, from my point of view, blah, blah, blah. the Christian says, well, you know, what do you know? Do you know enough to give the Jewish comment? There's no Jewish answer. There's a range of Jewish insights. Can you offer them? Or would it be that if you were not there, the conversation is no more enriched because you're not there anyway when you're there? It's what everybody else says and does. So what faces the Jewish people? What are the challenges? Well, as you may know, we're not expanding at a great rate. Right? Numerically, we're probably not going to grow. Well, we might grow a little bit, but not in a significant way. And certainly given the exponential growth, I've never understood what exponential really means, but people say it. Um, it means very, very much. Right? Um, given the growth of the world's population, and it's bumping up at a great rate, um, if Jews do grow by some marginal number, it won't be noticeable. We are, and always have been, doomed to be a minority. So we can relax, folks. We don't have to worry about numbers. If we're a small number, we always were a small number. We always will be a small number. We will always be a minority. We will not achieve anything through numerical challenge. It won't happen. Never has, never will. It's not the Jewish way. We'll achieve it by quality or we won't achieve it at all. So that's the first thing. So there are people who worry about numbers and demographies and stuff like that. 
relax. Relax. Jews will become an increasingly small proportion of the American population. It's so. Well, you know, guys, you were never a big proportion of the American population anyway. <laughs> Whatever's been achieved by Jews has been achieved because of the quality of those Jews. Not because it's huge numbers, but because of the quality. So we don't need to scare ourselves with that. So the numbers will not grow, and we will either have to continue to work through quality or we won't achieve anything at all. Second thing in the Middle East. You know, the first people to speak publicly about the possibility of the state of Israel being done away with were the Jews. We speak our fears out loud to everybody. Right? Everybody else is walking around assuming that countries exist because they do. All countries exist because they do. There aren't many countries that disappear off the face of the earth. That doesn't tend to happen very much. Right? But Jews are all going, oh, I don't know, it could. I mean, it might happen. I mean, after all, I'll tell you what could happen. And then we give people a program. <laughs> See, what could happen is they could move a motion in the United Nations. And then what could happen? And everybody's making notes. They go, oh, right, that, yes, we could do that. <laughs> Why do we have to do that? State of Israel exists. Of course it exists. It's a country. That's it. It's in the United Nations. It's there. Just relax. It's just obvious. It's a stupid idea. Somebody says the state of Israel should be exist. You're mad. Why don't you grow up? So we don't need to worry about the existence of the state of Israel. What we do need to worry about, of course, is whether or not it can finesse the critical problem of how Jewish it's going to be. And again, I tell you this, folks, it's not about numbers. It's not about numbers. It's about quality, not quantity. If you think that Israel's going to be Jewish just because it's got a few million more Jews than some other group, that's not going to make it Jewish. Because three quarters of the Jews in Israel are of no practical use to the Jewish business. Frequently, they're just baggage. And I say this because I was head of a Jewish school in Britain. Um, in Britain, I know this is another stupid British thing, um, the state pays for Jewish schools. How stupid is that? And we have this stupid idea that because people have paid taxes for their children's education, if they're educated in this school rather than that school, the state should pay for it. But that doesn't make any sense, does it? You should make people pay their taxes and then make them pay for private education. Oh, that's much more sensible. So, but anyway, we have this strange idea. And so I, I was head of this uh, Jewish school in Liverpool. And the Liverpool Jewish community is a small community. Very small community by American standards, really. There's only about three or 4,000 Jews. And as a result, there's simply not enough Jews to make a viable, attractive secondary school. And if it's going to be a state school, it's got to be of the size that the state is prepared to fund. It's not going to fund some miserable little operation. And furthermore, if you can't have sufficient um, quality in the school, then the Jews won't send their children to it anyway, as you know. Most Jews send their children to Jewish schools despite the Jewish education, not because of it. Right? They go, well, I suppose the Jewish education is a price to pay. It's a nice school. I'll send my children there. Right? Right? Why do they send their children to Jewish schools? In order to keep them away from other people, right? rather than because they want any Jewish education. Right? Um, so it was in my school. So um, about half of the children in my school were not Jewish. We may well have been the only... 
the, uh, and I think it still goes on, we may well have been the only Jewish school in the world to close early for a Christmas carol concert. <laughs> because we wanted to be a model of how to deal with minorities in our school. Right? And we wanted to be a model of that. And when I arrived at the school, the governors, the board, or whatever you call them here, um, had a tradition whereby they, uh, every governor's meeting, or every year or something, they received statistics about the proportions of Jewish and non-Jewish children in the school, right? Um, and, the, and the number of Jews in Liverpool is shrinking. They're moving to bigger centres. Uh, and so the number of Jewish children in the school was diminishing too. So the proportion was tipping. Um, so when I arrived there, the proportion was about 55% Jews, 45% non-Jews. Now, when I say non-Jews, because a huge variety of that, different kinds of Christians and Muslims and Sikhs and Hindus and whatnots and nothings in particular. Um, and so uh, the first governor's meeting I went to, I presented them with this document, it was 55%, 45%, and they all went into a flat panic. All right. Oh dear, look, the numbers, it used to be 60%, 40%, now it's 55%, 45%. It's going in the wrong direction. So I said, uh-huh, good, now what do you want to do about it? Shall we make some Jews or what? <laughs> well, there's nothing we can do, they said. It's terrible. I mean, people are leaving. And da -da. I go, good, so why are we discussing it? How's it going to help us? They go, no, but what happens when it goes to 50%, 40%, it goes tips the other way? What are we going to do? I said, it's a Jewish school, guys. What do you mean, what are we going to do? Of the 400 Jewish kids in this school, only about seven of them are of any practical use in the Jewish business. Right? The rest are just stuff you've got to slap along behind. It's not going to make any difference if there's 400 Jews or 300 Jews. It's, it's either the school is Jewish or it isn't. Either it cares about you know, the meals being kasher or it doesn't. Either it designs its calendar around the Jewish festivals or it doesn't. That's what makes it a Jewish school, not how many Jews there are in it. Are the founding principles and the central concerns Jewish or not? So I quietly buried this tradition of distributing these statistics for about four years or five years. Um, and so they did not find out the day on which the numbers tipped, showed that the Jews were in the minority. And it was only, in fact, in my seventh year as head, uh, just as I was leaving, uh, that somebody kind of woke up and remembered, go, wait, we haven't seen the statistics for a while. What's going on? Right? And I had to tell them that we had 40% Jews and 60% non-Jews. Nobody had noticed. That wasn't what made the difference. I would say that the school was more Jewish when I was head than it had been previously before when there were a higher proportion of Jews in it. Why? Because it was articulated Jewishly. Those were the values and principles of the thing. Israel is going to be Jewish if it's Jewish, not if it's got a lot of Jews in it. And that, I think, is a challenge, because I don't know how Jewish it is. I go to Israel quite frequently. I've just um, fixed up another visit um, in about three weeks' time. Um, so I go to Israel quite frequently. And uh, I, I say to Israelis, Jewish life in Israel 
is eroding at a tremendous rate. They say, you don't understand. Yom Kippur here. It's, you know, you can't miss it. Yom Kippur. Have you ever been in Israel for Yom Kippur? Everything shuts down. Everything shuts down. There's no cars on the road. As a result, all the kids go out and cycle. So Yom Kippur is a day for cycling. It's very Jewish. It's called the life cycle. I don't know how that makes it Jewish. Right? Oh, you can't miss Yom Kippur. Everybody's cycling. It's fabulous. It's very, yeah, very Jewish. Right? I, I, I say... I have witnessed the death of Christmas in my lifetime in Britain. What leads you to think that you're not going to witness the death of Yom Kippur in your lifetime in Israel? So it's not about numbers. It's about clarity of vision and purpose. It's understanding why does this day matter? What is really supposed to go on in this place? Cycling or something of more value? And is anybody there, anybody there, trying to express what those values are? Enclaves and subsets all talking to themselves and excoriating other enclaves and subsets. <coughs> so that's a real challenge for Israel. It's not the numerical challenge. It's the quality challenge. Again, not the quantity challenge. Jews have always distracted themselves with quantity. And it's never the thing. It's always quality. The community that will make a difference is the community that has quality, not numbers. I know this too because my mother is a Gibraltarian, or was a Gibraltarian. Gibraltar is a little dot on the end of Spain, a rock with a little apron. It's about uh, three miles wide, three miles long, and about a mile and a half wide. And most of that is mountain. Well, mountain, hill. Right? And, and in Gibraltar, there are about 28,000 people. It's not big at all. Of those 28,000, there are about 600 Jews. There have been 600 Jews in Gibraltar for I don't know how long. They come, they go, they bring back wives, husbands, they go again. Right? There's been 600 Jews for I don't know how long. Now, when I tell you that there's a community of 600 Jews, I wouldn't be surprised if you all make the natural calculation that everybody does when you tell them the size of a community. Now, the calculation I understand in Orange County is a bit different to the calculation we make in Britain. But nevertheless, it's the same kind of calculation. In Britain, if I tell you there's a community of a thousand Jews in a town, then we'll assume that there's about 200 of those Jews who are actually interested. Right? There'll be another 200 Jews who might be dragged along, and then another 600 Jews you can't easily find. Right? And so the 200 Jews who are interested have to do double energy in order to drag along. Each one of them has to drag four dead Jews behind them all the time right? in order to somehow engage a thousand Jews in the town. Right? Now, you know that if you could just tip the balance ever so slightly, if you could get another 50 Jews involved, then every Jew doesn't have to drag four Jews and only got to drag three Jews. Right? If you get another 50, then before you know where you are, every Jew's only dragging two Jews. And you know that if the core really warms up, it starts to have its effect on the people around them. And say, oh, this is interesting, this is nice, I can see this, this is worth getting involved in. So warming the core is a really important thing to do. Uh, by the way, 
uh, and I'm not just saying this because I'm the guest of it, I think that the CSP is an excellent example of that, warming the core, making Orange County a place where people might look at and say, oh, there's a community worth spending time in. There's real stuff going on in that, and it's not all surf. <laughs> Which you do know consists of froth. <laughs> so, so Israel certainly has a challenge to ensure that its life is Jewish. And Jewish of quality and Jewish of principle. And I am bored stupid with people who tell me that Jews must behave as other people do. You know, whenever you say, why doesn't Israel do this? Or why don't the Jewish community do that? They go, why should they? Does Iraq do that? Does Saudi Arabia do that? Have you seen how Nigeria behaves? As if these are supposed to be our models. I don't care what anybody else in the world does. Why was that ever a principle by which Jews should follow? We're supposed to be setting the standards, not traipsing along behind everybody. So Israel, I think, certainly has some challenges. But it needs to concentrate on what the key challenges are and not the others. You were talking about Gibraltar. Oh, Gibraltar, yes, I'm coming back to it. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I, I'm of the same community as Charles Dickens. As you may know, Charles Dickens uh, wrote his novels by sort of starting six stories simultaneously. And it's only by the time you get to the end that you find they all connect up. Right? So I'm, you know, marshalling these things. Right? So Gibraltar. 600 Jews, four synagogues, not because of disputes, that you might expect everybody left to, because that would probably start a new synagogue. Four synagogues, all of which are busy. All right, all of which are busy, and which cooperate, so that on the weekday services, um, they use one of each of the four synagogues in different seasons. So the little one, which is easiest to heat, they use in the winter. The one which is nice and airy, they use in the summer and so on. So the four synagogues get used for weekdays. And on Shabbat, they're full. And there's a community centre. And there's a club, a youth club. And there's an old age home. And there are two kosher restaurants. And a kosher butcher and a kosher baker. And there's a kollel. Um, a centre of adult religious study, kind of married yeshiva. 600 Jews. Why? Because of the 600 Jews, about 500 or 550 are active. That's the kind of equation. We just are astonished by it. It doesn't happen. We assume most Jews will be a waste of space. What terrible, terrible assumption for us to make. And what do we do to try and correct that? Well, we leave it to Chabad. <laughs> or the Jewish agency. We say, well, those guys, I don't know, they go out and get folk. I don't know how they do it, and I don't agree with them anyway. But I'm not going to do it myself. You know what we should be afraid of? Is that not every Jew invites another Jew round to their home on a regular basis. If not for any other reason, for the special occasions. For Seder, for Shabbat, for whatever it might be. You know what we should be afraid of? 
that we don't necessarily know the names of the sick Jews who live near us and we don't visit them. That we should be afraid of. Those are things to fear because those are the corrosive destructivenesses that will kill a people quicker than any amount of political trouble. And the Jews have got quite self-centered, both collectively, that is, we worry about our own business, and individually, we worry about our own business. I, I'm sure, I'm, look, you guys, I'm sure, are fabulous, and I'm talking about all the other Jews outside. <laughs> and I wouldn't be surprised if many of you, if not most of you, uh, donate money to welfare resources and, you know, to make sure that people are looked after. But what about time? You know, there are two ways in Jewish life of giving. One is tzedakah, resources, money. And the other is gemilut chasadim, acts of loving kindness. I, I think, generally speaking, prosperous communities such as uh, Orange County are pretty good at the tzedakah thing. We give the money. And we employ people to do the gemilut chasadim. We get people to go out and visit the sick and find all that I haven't got time, you know, I'm too busy. Too busy not being busy. That we should be afraid of. It would be wonderful, and it may be true, but it's not true in every community for sure. But it would be wonderful if each of you here could easily point to someone you support, someone Jewish and someone non-Jewish. That would be the Mamlechet Kohanim, the kingdom of priests. But I suspect it's not that easy. And many of you may be thinking, well, I, I do give, you know, but so difficult, so busy, other things. And we've been seduced by the things. I've given two or three lectures while I've been here about the Haredim and erroneously called the ultra-Orthodox. My goodness, you know, there's a lot wrong with that community. But the manner in which Haredim support each other, the sharing, the giving, the hospitality, the inclusion, the indifference to material possessions is a challenge to every single Jew on the planet. We could learn from the Haredim. They're not very interested in learning from us. But that's not a problem. Not everything has to be a two-way street. We can get the good from wherever it comes. So, what do we have to be afraid of? We have to be afraid of our reluctance to be passionately Jewish. It all sounds a bit Christian, you know, when people start talking too passionately about their commitments, witnessing. Jews don't do that. Especially, I'm told, in America. Oh, I think it's private business. I don't think it's, I don't feel I should mention that. It's, not. it's very strange. I'm constantly being told by Americans that American Jews are kind of out and proud, unlike the shrinking violet Jews of Europe who uh, kind of don't 
demonstrate and make it clear. And yet whenever I say to an American audience, get out there and tell people what Jewish things you think in your workplace. Enrich the conversation in your workplace by your Jewish insights. I don't think I should bring that. It's not right. Very odd. But of course the first position is to actually know some stuff. <laughs> you can't bring anything there if you don't know it. And we have a Jewish community which is sadly amongst the most highly educated people on the planet in secular matters. And yet amongst the most woefully ignorant Jews in history in Jewish matters. As a general rule, Jews seem to be satisfied with a level of elementary Jewish knowledge which would be shocking if you translated it into history or maths or geography or literature. We seem to think that's sufficient. And then we present ourselves as models to our children and grandchildren. Well, it's not surprising if they can't see any point to it all. And CSB again, as I say, is a wonderful beacon of seeking to turn that around. To make us into intelligent Jews, for goodness sake. People have something thoughtful to say. Some insights into the tradition. These are the things we need to be afraid of. And we can see them. You know, prophets never talked about 200 years time. Prophets talked about the here and now. So if this is an attempt at modern prophecy, I'm describing the world we're in and what we need to be attentive to. By all means, sign all the petitions you like to challenge boycotts and to insist on rights and to fight for this and to step up for that and Jewish concerns. But don't lose sight of the fact that our greatest enemy is our own indifference and our own ignorance. And no amount of fighting against other stuff will strengthen us in that field, and that's in our hands. And if we enjuvenate ourselves, grow and blossom and assert and express and enjoy and rejoice in the massive privilege of being, as I said in my first lecture here, the luckiest people in history, then there's a really good chance that we'll fulfill our mission statement of being a goy kadosh and a mamlechet koanim, a holy people and a kingdom of priests, and fulfilling that blessing which was given to Abraham, that he and his descendants should be a blessing on the world. But if we obsess ourselves with our dangers, if we fright ourselves with false fire, we will be of no practical use to ourselves or anybody else, and we will not be able to remember in due course, how we lost our grip on one of the great gifts that's been given to humanity, which is the possibility that the world contains Jews. That's in our hands. I just want to conclude by saying, and I don't the time for questions maybe, I just want to conclude by saying that this month has been for me absolutely wonderful. I have rejoiced in the warmth and enthusiasm, a bit Californian perhaps, but that's okay, 
the enthusiasm that so many of you have shown towards me, the hospitality, the kindness, the thoughtfulness. And I hope you'll forgive me if I name three specific individuals. Uh, I want to name, first of all, Nira Roston, who has been a model. Uh, not, not just an absentee landlady. Uh, and I've, I've been able to stay in her lovely house. Uh, but also somebody who's really striven to uh, enable me to see the, the best of uh, what Orange County has to offer. I've been very, very lucky in that. I appreciate it. And I want to mention Ada Gilbert, um, who, on, on my first day here, uh, gave me a tour around Orange County, which gave me just a kind of sense of how it all worked. It was a critically important day, really helped jumpstart me into this, um, and since then has managed my social calendar very kindly and helpfully. Uh, and of course, last but by no means least, I want to mention Ari Katz. Um, you know, Ari is, uh, is, is fond of saying that he brings world-class scholars here, and he's also brought me. Um, <laughs> but you need to know that in Ari you have a world-class activist. Right. This is a man who's made this program happen with the goodwill and enthusiasm of many of you here who've supported him. Right. But it so often, again and again, needs an individual to say, why don't we? Actually, why don't I? Actually, I'm going to. And that's what Harry did. And that's what he's created. And he is, I think, supremely enriching and uplifting the future of Orange County Jury. And I hope you will give him every support in future. And I am so grateful to him for bringing me here and making this possible. Oh, a bit of a standing ovation. Um, I, I have commented in other places that um, in, in Europe, if you're in a theater and there's a standing ovation, um, you know one of two things has happened. Either you have been present at an utterly life-changing experience, which will be spoken about for centuries thereafter, or there are a lot of Americans in the audience. Right. Right. Um, so, there it is. Um, so, folks, I'm done. I'm happy to take some questions. I think maybe we have a little bit of time. If there are any questions or comments or challenges... Yes? I have two comments. Mm -hmm. <laughs> a cross is a mezuzah with handles on it right? I do actually know a family who moved into their house and they put mezuzot on the doors and then they painted the house and painted over the mezuzot and then somebody pointed out to them that they'd got them pointing in the wrong direction they'd have them pointing outwards instead of pointing inwards so they prized them off and put them the right way around so because they'd painted they've now got crosses on every door <laughs> interesting thing Quite nice. Yes. You said rejoice and renew. And if you did it one step further, you could rejew. I like that. Rejew. Okay, good. Well, I hope you don't have to rejew, just jew. No? Yeah. Uh, anybody else? Anything else? Or have I stunned you into silence? Yes. Um, well, there, there are um, these... I. I tunes uh, recordings here 
Um, I take uh, refuge in Socrates, Jesus and Buddha, um, who never wrote anything and uh, relied on everybody else to remember it and tell each other. So it's kind of, uh, what do you call it here? Broken telephone. We call it Chinese whispers. So there's no knowing what you're eventually going to say I said, um, but there is now this record here. Um, apparently, if you Google me or something or YouTube me or something, there are obscure and weird and disconnected bits and bobs about things I've said and done in the past. Um, but really, I'm, I rely very solidly on uh, my ephemeral identity. And um, I hope that you'll carry away with it, you whatever you got from this. That's the memorable stuff. The rest is stuff. Yes? Well, the age has sometimes been quite mean, it's true. Um, you know, folks, I want to bring you another thing. I, I will kind of answer this, but tangentially, if I may. Uh, I want to bring you another thing from Haredim. You know, Haredim honor age, right? We are very poor at it, actually. Spend a lot of time trying to escape age. Uh, and we have honored youth. This is a really stupid thing to do because they're all going to grow up, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Um, and one of the rich, rich things that you see, I don't, know if, I don't know how it is in your communities on something like um, Simchat Torah, right? On the festival of Simchat Torah, as you know, this is a festival where we celebrate the Torah and the abiding image, the, 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 the uh, overarching image of Simchat Torah is a marriage, is a wedding. Yes, we have the, the Chatan Torah, and the, the, you know, the bridegroom of the Torah. And so, right? so the image is one of a wedding. The Jewish people marry the Torah. Now, adults know what a complicated, challenging, difficult thing that is as a concept. This is not romance. This is not we're in love. It's marriage. That requires huge amounts of compromise and struggle and figuring out and, and you know, walking away and coming back and so on. That's the image of Simchat Torah. And yet so many communities think Simchat Torah is for children. And, and you go around the world and you go to communities on Simchat Torah and you see there kids trailing around after the Sifri Torah, wondering what they're doing there. Right? And, and often they've been given flags. I don't know, do you have these flags? With pictures of... Kids, the like of which haven't been seen since the 1950s, right? right? And they're carrying these flags, and they don't really know what to do with them. So they're kind of trailing about with a flag after them, thinking, right? And they're looking at the adults, their parents and others, always assuming their parents didn't just drop them off and nip off to do something else, right? They're looking at the adults who are all kind of standing around. Going, oh, go on, go on, go on. They're not joining in. The adults are teaching the supremely important message that you grow out of Judaism. It's kid stuff. It's infantile. Right? And so what the kid's doing, they're walking around and they're thinking to themselves as they get older, when I get to be 14, I can pack this in. That's what they're thinking. Right? Now, if you go to a Haredi community, you know what you see? You see a bunch of 80-year-old men all dancing furiously around the Sifrei Torah and behind them are sort of 50-year-olds going, go on, let me in. They go, no, get out, you're too young. Right? <laughs> It's a, Judaism is something you grow into. And it seems to me that, you know, we treat Jewish life very often like it's a, like it's a fun fair. I don't know, what do, you, what do you call it here? Um, 
a, a, a carnival sort of thing, right? Um, it's the kind of thing that no adult goes to unless to take children, right? And, and children have lovely memories of it. And when they get old enough to have their own children, they'll take them too. But nobody expects an adult gratification out of a carnival except by displacement, watching the children enjoy it. So we take our children into Jewish things like it's a carnival experience. And children know you grow out of it. And I want us to treat Jewish life like it's theatre or opera. That is, first of all, we go to it and we leave the kids behind. And we say to them, sorry, I'm going. And they go, oh, please don't go. go oh, no, we've got tickets. It's very important. Look, Janet's here to look after you. She's the babysitter. I know you hate her, but tough. I'm going. <laughs> right? This is important. I'm not going to miss it. This matters. Maybe when you get older, maybe I'll take you. Right? And then when they're seven or eight or nine, we try and find some child-friendly version of it. Right? And we say to them, let's go to this. But, you know, it's not the real thing. I'm doing the real thing. Maybe when you're older, you'll really get it. And they realize that this is something you grow into, which becomes satisfying as maturity strikes. Because Jewish is grown-up stuff. So I'm really pleased that I get grown-ups. Right? And I don't care what age you are. So long as you're compass mentis, <laughs> just keep going. It doesn't matter what age you are. That's what Limud, by the way, has been committed to. So long as you're an adult, you're an adult. I don't care, old, young, middle-aged, it doesn't matter. Play your part and inspire the folk around you. And the age doesn't matter. And especially here in Orange County, where everybody seems to keep going until they're about 190 anyway. <laughs> so why should we worry about age? Right? If young people are too stupid to get it, then that's because they're distracted by the world we've bequeathed to them. Right? We offer our children actually quite an impoverished vision of what's possible. I think I said here the first time I came that very often we say, you know, what we want for our children is that they should be happy. This is not a good goal. It really isn't, right? I, I know in America, you know, the pursuit of happiness, but that's not what it means. It doesn't mean happy, happy. It doesn't mean smiling all the time, right? It means some deep sense of contentment because of achievement that you can lie on your deathbed with some level of satisfaction. That's what that happy means. And, and we don't tell our children that enough. We let our children think that having stuff, doing stuff, going places is what life is about. And actually life is about making the world a better place. And we should tell them that all the time. And I don't think we say it often enough. Parents feel self-conscious about speaking the language of inspiration. And children, of course, are very good and especially encouraged by our society to go, oh, mom, shush. And so we shush. And we shouldn't. We should say, yeah, I know you don't want to hear it, but I want to tell you, this matters. And when I die, I don't want you to remember me for anything else except these things that I tell you. And you know, there are very few people who say something like that. And there are sadly children who have no idea what their parents stood for or cared about. I remember Ed talking about this too, right? We need to make sure that doesn't happen. So that when they become our age, they become useful. Don't worry about youth. It's wasted on the young anyway. <laughs> right. um, yes, sir, at the back.
I'm a half caste. My mother married out. She married an Ashkenaz. <laughs> Well, there are massive differences, and I've mentioned this, I think, in some of my other lectures, but approximately, I think of, um, of Ashkenazim as Christian Jews and, and Sephardim as Muslim Jews, yeah. right? And Christianity has as its core, its core, I mean, its, its inspirational character is, of course, Jesus. And Jesus' um, critical moment was an act of martyrdom. Uh, and, and so the Ashkenazi... And it's hard to be a Jew thing. Um, and, and in the end, you've got to throw yourself on the flames. It's a very Ashkenazi thing. And, and the world is seen to be a rather threatening place and, and difficult to cope in. And we've got to struggle and get through. Sfaradim, on the other hand, you know, the, the key character in Islam is Muhammad. And Muhammad is a ducker and a weaver, right? Muhammad always steps back to regroup, to fight again. And, and so on. He's not, he's not going to throw himself on the flames. That's one of the reasons why uh, suicide bombing is in a, uh, actually quite a shock to most Muslims, because it's just not the way Muslims behave. Right? As a general rule, you don't chuck your life away. Right? You keep going. That's what you do. And Sephardim are like that. So Sephardim tend to look at the world and go, oh, here's an opportunity, right? rather than here's a threat. So there is something of that. And, there, and Sephardim also are lousy at thinking. Right, they're very good at feeling, lousy at thinking. I can say this because I'm a half ghost, right? right? Ashkenazim are very good at thinking, not very good at feeling. So Ashkenazim do it all up here. And that's why we've all split up into all our different groups because we all have to disagree. Right? And we can't just disagree and stay in the same room. We have to disagree and create different rooms. Right? Sephardim go, oh, come on, stop arguing, aren't we all Jews? That's good enough. Right? And so Sephardim hasn't, haven't got all this reform and orthodox and stuff. They've just got Jews. Right? So they remain kind of traditionalist. Right? But Ashkenazim have the great tradition of learning, which Sephardim never developed to the same degree. They're starting to learn it, but never to the same degree. Uh, so there are all kinds of differences. Um, and I consider myself hugely fortunate to have both bits. Um, yeah, we'll take this, I think, probably as the last. Yes? Yes, sir. What about the Mizrahim? Well, uh, yes, when I talk about Sephardim, I'm including in that the Mizrahim in this context. Uh, because they're the Muslim Jews par excellence. Um, uh, the Mizrahim are the Middle Eastern and Eastern Jews. Um, and uh, if you look, for example, at the history of Iraqi Jewry or Iranian Jewry, these inspirational communities seizing every opportunity available to them, really putting their mark across the planet wherever they can go. Um, so, I mean, you know, Caesars of moments, Sephardim. Ashkenazim have also done that, but rather more with a kind of, ooh, dear, it's hard, and I hope I can get through mode of mind. Um, which I, you know, if we can learn from each other, it'd be great. Um, oh, Ari, it's nearer. I have to take it. It's not a question, yes. actually. Since you brought the subject, I was at the Bureau of Jewish Education early dinner last night, right. and I chose to go to a place where girls who still keeps the beautiful music of the Ladino uh -huh. music and the Sephardic story. And it was an amazing, I happened to know her and uh, family were patients of my mm. husband. And I figured I'm going to that. And I told her, you not, did, didn't only make my day, my week, my month, the whole year. It was such an experience. 
to see what they had to say. There was a pianist who gave us the story of the Jews in Sephardim from Saloniki, from wherever they all came. And then the music was so expressive. And the, she translated what the poems were that she was singing to. So I said to her, how are you going to keep this going? You are a one person in Orange County, but what are you doing about it in Israel and all over? And she answered that too. But it was amazing to go through how they express themselves in Ladino and what Ladino was. It's uh, like a, she said, it's like the Yiddish, like German, and Ladino, it's like Spanish. Yeah, yeah except Spanish is more attractive than German. Well, folks, the one thing that this tells us is that all Jewish things are more complicated than you think. Right? Whenever you're ready to make a generalization, step back and go, hmm, not sure. I just want to conclude then by offering you a concept that I taught my daughters from when they were tiny. Um, it's a concept we still talk about. It's a sumsay. I uh, don't know if you've ever come across a sumsay. Right? A sumsay is that whenever anybody tells you anything, you have to ask, is this a sumsay? Because some things are and some things aren't. A sumsay is where you find that the answer is, well, some say this, but some say that. <laughs> and you need to know when there's a some say, because that's when the beauty and richness of Judaism really comes out, because our best moments is when we argue, because that's how we tease out how we learn. We should never be afraid of argument. We should love the argument and love each other in the process. Thank you.